some of you probably weren't with us the whole of last year. So from January to December, we walked book by book through the 66 books in the Bible. We went from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy all the way to the book of Revelation. And we were trying to understand as a community what kind of story are we in? What is this story marked by? And at the very beginning, I think sometimes in Christianity, the story begins with, you're a bad person, okay? You're sinful, you need Jesus. Will you pray this prayer? That misses a lot of the story. You with me? There's a lot more pages in this story than that. And it skips a massive, massively important first part of the story, because the story begins with a God who creates a world who calls it not evil, but good. Over and over again, he says, I I made the whales of the sea. That's really good. I made this lemon tree. Wow, so good. I made this platypus. Look how good that is and weird. And then I made man and, and woman, and I created them in my image. And today, the last few weeks, we've been talking about, okay, who is God How can that help us understand who we are? Then last year we kind of reversed that, said, who are we and how does that play into our relationship with God? And today we're going to talk about, okay, based on our identity in Christ as his beloved, living in his unshakable kingdom, what are we now called to do? The big churchy historical word for that is the word vocation. Can you guys say vocation? Vocation. It's not really a word that you hear in our everyday culture a lot. It can sound Christianese, but it really just speaks to this idea that we have a calling, that we're being called out from God to a specific task, not just a a doing, but a being. There's a vocation on our lives that's rooted in our identity, but we will screw that up if if we take that question, what am I called to be and what am I called to do, if we rip that out of the story, you know what I'm saying? If we just try to ask that in an abstract way, we're gonna miss a lot. Because at the very beginning in Genesis, God says, so I create man in my own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. He said to them, this seems like a vocation to them, a calling. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. We're doing that in our church, by the way. We are multiplying. Babies are being born here in the next few months. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds. He said, behold, I've given you every plant. And God said, and he looked at everything, he said, this is very good. Essentially, he's saying, I'm the creator of the world. I'm making humans in my image. And now they are participants in this story, moving history with me in my desired direction. I could do it all on my own. That's not what pleases me. What I delight in, by the way, Garden of Eden, Eden means to delight to delight in something. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't sit around singing worship songs. There was a garden there. They were tilling it. They were eating it. They had a mandate by God to not only be fruitful and multiply, but fill the earth so that it could cultivate all the richness of what the earth could do. I mean, it took us a few thousand years, but the iPhone finally came about. You know what I'm saying? Like, we we did that because... There's this good stuff in the earth, and it took us a lot of time. You with me? To, to like figure out, okay, how does this metal work with this thing, and how do we do this? That's a part of God's intention. Have you ever thought about that? Like a part of the creational good that's in our world is that it's ordered in such a way that human beings can mine it, manipulate it, and 
and use it for the good of others that glorifies God. But in that creation story, very quickly, we see a story that turns south and Adam and Eve decide, no thanks God, Satan says that we can run our own life and we don't need you and so we would prefer autonomy and so we're going to take the fruit of the tree and we're going to sin against you. We're going we're gonna to rebel against you and God says, okay, well then you cannot no longer live in the Garden of Eden and as a punishment, death comes into the world Disease comes into the world, and, and all of a sudden now our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with creation itself is broken, our relationship with one another is broken, and maybe you're feeling this this morning, but your relationship with yourself, there's a part of sin that makes us feel disconnected from our true self. And then God says in Genesis chapter 11, I'm going to choose this family, this very humble, Near Eastern family, and I'm going to restore the world through them. He calls Abraham, and he says, through your family, I'm going to restore the earth. And on Israel's life, let me just read you this. Uh, this is cool. I found this this morning. In Isaiah 42, this is all over the Old Testament, but it, I don't know if it's clearer than this. In Isaiah 42, it's God talking, and he says, I'm the Lord, Israel, and I've called you. This is your vocation. In righteousness, in my goodness, I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to give you a covenant for the people. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a promise for you. And then he says this, you are to be a light for the nations. When I think about Israel's call, what were they supposed to do? What were they supposed to be? They were meant, in Genesis chapter 12, God doesn't say, Abraham, I'm blessing you so that you could be rich, period. He says, no, I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. And all over the Old Testament, read the book of Leviticus. It's really weird. And it's really weird in comparison to how other cultures at that time lived. They had no focus on the poor, on the widows, on women, on children, specifically girl children. If you read the Old Testament in Leviticus in light of other cultures of that time, you're going you're gonna to wake up pretty quick to understand this is a different kind of God who values the least of these, who values everybody. He's trying to protect everybody. He's trying to work for the good of everybody. But Israel fails at their vocation, their calling. They don't do it. So that's where we come into Matthew, the book of Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John is all about Jesus, the story of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, I had to say that because you won't understand what Jesus is saying unless you understand that context, okay? Because in Luke chapter 4, Beginning in verse 14, if you want to look there, let's just scroll down. Luke 4, 14. If I could just read that all the way to verse 40, can you stay, or sorry, verse 30, can you stay with me? All right, my Bible broke, my pages ripped out, so this is the ESV version, so if that sounds different, it is. Um, my Bible's being repaired right now by some dude in Gilbert, I trust him. Um, so, Luke 4, in the ESV English Standard Version, starting in verse 14, says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's a region there around his hometown. A report went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by everybody, being praised by a lot. He came to Nazareth, which is where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Remember Isaiah 42 we just read? He unrolled the scroll. He found a place where it was written, and he read this. This is Isaiah 60, by the way. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives by recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are being oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. Jesus sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Big statement. And all, everybody there, they spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Jesus says back, well, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, hey, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do right here now in your hometown as well. And Jesus said back to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now, this is important. Stay with me. I know some of you right now, this is a lot. All right? Check, but check. This is important because there's about to be a turn in the story. It doesn't make sense. Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, different. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's interesting. And then they rose up out of their church service. They drove Jesus out of the town. They brought him to a hill which was on their town so that they could throw him off a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The end. Okay, a lot going on there. How does he go from everybody glorified him, everybody thought his speech was gracious, then he tells two little stories about Elijah and Elisha, and all of a sudden, the whole group in the synagogue rises up, pushes him outside the city, and tries to throw him over the edge of a cliff. And miraculously, it says, like, uh, like a superhero movie, he just walks through him. He just walks away, and he's not hindered. He's not hurt. So let's go to the beginning, and hopefully uh, this will give clarity, I think, to the question of God, what are you calling me to be and to do? What do you, so the first week we talked about God is love, the very definition of love. Last week we talked about our identity as the beloved, and we live in his unshakable kingdom. That's where we live. Even though the world around us might be falling apart, we live in his unshakable kingdom. Today I want to ask the question, okay, based on that, what are we called to do about that? What's our calling as a group? It says here, Verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report went about all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth as he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. So let me just pause right there and say, shameless plug, Jesus chose to do life in community his entire life. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the rest of the New Testament. Read the Old Testament. 
in ancient Near Eastern Israel, even honestly in the Middle East today, they are unlike us in that they are community first, individual second. Are you with me? We are, in America, the most individualistic society of all time. And let me just say this. It's not bad to be an individual. Right? God made us individually. He's not trying to absorb us into this mass oneness, okay? There's distinctive, like, uniqueness about each one of you. It's beautiful. But understand this. In the Gospels, Jesus surrounded himself with community. He refused to do life alone. Don't you think he could have done a better job without those 12 hooligans that he said, why don't you come follow me? They messed up everything. They just made it messy, and he could have done it all. He could have walked on all the water, you understand? He could have fed all the people. But instead, Jesus, like God, who he is God, by the way, but like God, the creator, he wants to work through you. He wants to work through me. And how does he do that? He does this in community, right? It's interesting to me because America, we love team sports, I mean, look at Jason's Buffalo Bill hat. Come on, go Bills. Yeah. We love it. We are fat, like baseball, hockey, all the major sports. Golf, we put on to sleep. Are you with me? That's what we watch when we want to sleep. When we want to nap and wake up three hours later, like, who's winning by one stroke? All right? But we love team sports. Here, our calling is rooted in community. We won't discover our identity, and we will not discover our calling outside of community. Aiden, if you'll put up that Teresa of Avila quote, it's one of my favorite saints from the last 500 years. She's amazing. She wrote a book called The Interior Castle. It's just self-discovery. It's an incredible classic book. In there, she says this, it's a great advantage for us to be able to consult someone who knows us so that we may learn to know ourselves. Now, this is a great saint in the faith, and she's telling us the truth, which is, you want to discover who you are and what you're called to be, you cannot do that alone. You cannot. And I'm going to make this announcement later, but this isn't an announcement. This is, this is a sermon, okay? This is, this is a principle of our church. Like, it's impossible to become like Christ alone. And so over the next three months, there's going to be a men's community, a women's community, a student community that's going to be focused on, God, okay, this is who you are. Now, how do we become like you? Do the things that you're doing. Become inside out like you are. If you're love, I don't want to just try to be loving to other people. I want my instinct to be love to one another. Okay, God, if the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and that's who you are, you're a joyous, celebratory, a bountiful God, I want to become like that. In all circumstances, joy is possible. Peace is possible. And we're going to spend the next three months figuring that out together, not just in a big crowd, but in a community. So our vocation is rooted in community. And it was a rhythm of Jesus, it says, a habit of his, that every single Saturday he went to the synagogue. He never skipped. He could have. If anybody could have slept in through church, Jesus. He didn't. Then he goes on to say, okay, in community, this is what I'm coming to do. And he quotes Isaiah 61. This is a direct reference from Isaiah 61. Jesus gets up. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. So think about this. In the Old Testament, when a new king would come into office, they would take a massive thing of olive oil, and they would just dump it on his head, just over the top of him, 
just lavishing him with oil to say, this is our anointed king. This is, this is who we're following. And Jesus is saying, okay, not with olive oil, but with the Holy Spirit, I am filled, I am covered with the Spirit. And he's on me, and this is what the Spirit is about. He says, I'm going to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm going to recover the sight of the blind. I'm going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I'm not going to go deep into this, but there's this really, really cool celebration in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. Have you ever heard of this? It's like every seven years, seven times seven years, like the 49th year, the entire nation of Israel was supposed to set all their captives free. If you're in slavery, you're no longer in slavery, okay? If my son racked up $100,000 in debt, no more debt. Free, free. The year of Jubilee was supposed to be a year of celebration, freedom. It never happened, by the way. They never celebrated it because let's be honest, if you're rich and you have slaves and they're working on your field, how easy is it for you to pull away? Say, actually, all the stuff you owe me, you're good. That'd be hard. That never happened. But Jesus is saying, I'm here to set everybody free. Now, let's talk about the words poor and blind for a second. Because some of you, when I say he came to proclaim good news to the poor, you don't put yourself in that category, and you probably should. When he says poor, he doesn't mean economically poor, although some of you might think that that's you in the room, based on the economy in 2024. He doesn't mean spiritually, just spiritually. This is a holistic word that refers to everybody who's on the outside. Okay, so in Jesus' day, this would have been people that did not get along with the Roman government, they'd be on the outside, okay? They'd be poor. In his day, if you were born a woman and you weren't married, or if you were a widow, you'd be on the outside. He's saying, I'm coming to give good news to you. If you were a kid in the Roman Empire or in Israel in general, nobody respected you, okay? Nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to give you good news. Anybody who feels like they're on the outside is now brought inside. And he even says, whoever's blind to this revelation, this good news, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to them. Now, some of you in the room, I know, this, is hard, this is really hard in 2024 because it is an election year. And we have people in our hearts and our minds that are on the outside. They're on the outside. They don't agree with us. They should agree with us. They do not agree with us. This is probably the most perfect year to practice whoever you think is outside. God is saying, no, I'm inviting them inside. Whoever you're looking at and saying, they couldn't possibly be a part of God's family. Jesus is saying, no, that's actually why I came, to make everybody a part of the family of God. So later, right after this verse, when it says, everybody spoke well at him, they marveled at his gracious words. What they meant was they're astonished that God's good news is for everybody. It's that gracious. And that's why right after this, Jesus tells two stories that are not about Israel. Now picture for a moment, you're in the nation of Israel, you're in synagogue, you're hoping to hear good news, and you are in Roman captivity. And your whole identity as a nation, and as an individual, you've been enslaved by Babylon, you've been enslaved by Assyria, and now the Roman Empire has come in and conquered you and said, you're no longer even a you're like a nation within our nation. Now, a picture, they're saying, we want good news for ourselves. Give us good news for ourselves, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. Let me tell you why I came. 
and he tells two stories. One is Elijah, who goes and he helps a widow outside of Israel, right? So that widow he mentions, notice it's very clear to say, hey, this Zarephath woman, she lived in the land of Sidon. I know most of you, you read over that, you're like, not a big deal. Massive deal. Because what he's saying is, those are the people I came to save. Not just you, Israel, everybody. And then the very next verse, Elisha says, Naaman the Syrian, check this out. Naaman just wasn't from another country. He was a commander in an army of the enemy's army. He is from an enemy army. And Elisha helped him. And Jesus says, that's why I came. So now do you get a kind of a picture of why do they then rise up out of their seats and take him to the edge of the hill to throw it over? Because he's essentially saying, I'm the anointed one. I am your savior, and I didn't come just to save you. I came to save everybody. And that pisses them off. It makes them mad. So mad they want to kill him. That's how bad it is. That's how desperate they are. So now translate that into, okay, what does that mean for you and me? Okay, if Jesus' call was for everybody to save everybody, what does that mean for us? I think, number one, it means, like we talked about, our vocation rooted in community is for those who are outside. Outside. The nature of the church as a whole is focused upward and outward, not inward. Don't get me wrong in this. Barry's going to talk about this next week. There are plenty of one another's in Scripture that talk about caring for each other. But the nature of the church is a missional church. We are on mission. It's not a piece of who we are. It is truthfully, it's the essence of who we are. We're pointed outward. And I brought uh, three of my favorite books. Just, this one's called The Great Story and The Great Commission. It just talks about how we're to make disciples of all nations. And he says this at the very end of his book. This is in the conclusion. He talks about the whole church is meant to be on mission. So every single person in the church, every member, and all of their life is meant to be And then he ends on this note, which I thought was awesome. He says, mission is not an agenda for a specialized task force in the church, which sometimes is just referred to that. Like, oh, we have a missions department in our church. No, he's saying that's not a specialized task force thing. Mission is not a project to be completed by agencies equipped with every tool of management at their disposal. Mission is not an exotic vocation. Do you hear that? It is not an exotic vocation reserved for special people who are appointed and trained and sent and paid to do it for the rest of us. That is not mission. He says this. He says, mission is our mode as a church. Individually and collectively, mission is the mode of existence for all of life, for every member of God's whole church. May God help us and our churches to live out the implications of that reality for God's glory and the good of others. I love that. That's Chris Wright. Uh, This dude, David Benner, he says this, if I can find it. Here we go. God's call to our fulfillment is therefore a call to take our place in his grand restoration agenda, making all things new in Christ. Paradoxically, our fulfillment lies in the death of our own agendas, putting them at rest. It lies in the crucifixion of our egos. 
Christ's ways always turn our ways upside down. I know this sounds weird for a lot of you in the room because some of you are struggling day by day to just get along, just go by. I get it. But I, I'm here to say that the call for the people of God and throughout the whole story of Scripture is we are blessed to be a blessing to other people. And that sounds upside down, but oftentimes when we are most depressed, most anxious, it would be most helpful for us to go out and serve somebody else. There's a joy in the Lord in that that's just strange. The Holy Spirit anoints us to move towards those who are on the outside. And in that, those on the inside are taken care of even better. And last but not least, um, this quote, so good. He says, Mission does not come from the church. The church has to be understood in light of it is God's mission for the world. We have to reflect on our identity and calling. We are a missionary church. Now, I don't know if you've ever put this together, but that is the reason why we're called Rhythm Community Church. We're called that because, to me, rhythm speaks of this idea of there's practices that we do, rhythms that we do together that help us to become like Christ. We can't do that without one another community, but ultimately, that's for the sake of the world. The church is for the sake of the world. We are formed by God with each other for the good and the glory of God, for the good of others, for the glory of God. And so I I want you to hear me on this. I'm not here to tell you what your vocation is. That is to be discovered creatively by you. And I love, if you can throw up this verse, this is how we're going to end today and enter into a time of communion. This is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6. Right after he says, those of you who are filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit to serve other people. I know this is a lot. You don't have to read this. I just put it up there for those of you who have a hard time focusing when you close your eyes. So this is Galatians 6. Um, I'm only going to read the first part of it, but I'm going to read it a few times, and I would love it if we could do this in an ancient way of reading Scripture, which is called Lectio Divina. It's just a way of reading it a few times, letting it wash over us, trying to hear from God. What is he trying to say to you about your calling today? So if it helps to look at it, great. If it helps to close your eyes, awesome. Uh, Houston, would you come up and play as I read this? That would help me. Thank you. So just maybe read um, with me the first time. Just get oriented to this passage. Paul says, live creatively, friends. If somebody falls into sin, forgivingly restore him. Saving your critical comments for yourself. Amen. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think you're too good for that, you're badly deceived. Here's the calling piece. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained to self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a very generous, common life 
with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience. I'm just going to read that middle part just a few more times and let it sink, hopefully, into our souls. And again, maybe this could be just a interactive conversation with you and the Lord before you take communion, before you remember Jesus died that you could have a vocation. He resurrected that you could have a calling in a new being. So listen to this invitation to make a careful exploration of who you are and the good that you've been given, the work that you've been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the very creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience. I'm going to read that again, and this time, um, again, no pressure here, but if you feel comfortable, after I read it this third time, maybe there's a word or a phrase that's being highlighted to you this morning by the Spirit or just in your own heart and your own mind. And if you feel comfortable after I'm done reading it, would you speak out? Would you say out loud that word or that phrase that's sticking out to you? God, speak to us as we soak in this passage. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience. Is there anything that stands out to you? Don't compare yourself to others on both sides. Yeah, amen to that. Sink yourself into that. Oh, yeah. responsibility wow self-sufficient maturity sharing so good Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comment for yourself. 
you might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. So stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think you're too good for that, you are badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given. And sink yourself into that. Do not be impressed with yourself. Do not compare yourself to others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous common life with those who have been trained, who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience. And don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good at the right time. We will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit right now. Therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. And so, Father, as we go into a time of communion right now, we remember that you, Jesus, did not allow yourself to be fatigued doing good. You said for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Jesus, I just, I'm just imagining you in the upper room right now giving bread and wine to your closest followers and saying, hey, for the, for the future, do this and remember me. Remember my body that was broken for you. Remember my blood that was shed for you. So whatever you meant by that, whatever you were conscious of when you said remember me, help us to enter into that as a community right now. Nourishing ourselves in Christ that we might nourish the ones around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're welcome to take bread and wine. Hey, thanks for listening to the Life and Rhythm podcast. If you'd like to know more about Rhythm Community Church, you can go online at rhythm.community. Peace.